Hello, wrestling fans. Happy August. Happy summertime. The dog days of summer are upon us. And this is an all new episode of Charting the Territories. My name is Al Getson. With me, as he is every month, is my co-host, Mr. John Boucher. John, how has your summer been? Oh, Phil, dog dog days of summer. You're not kidding. It's been it's been a it's been a it's been a hot one and a humid one. Yeah, I was actually. Uh, we'll talk about this later. But I was up in New York and I uh, ran into you while I was there. But it was <laughs> yep. hotter in New York for those few days by a few degrees than it was in Atlanta. Oof, which is wild and crazy. And I, I'm sure that kind of means that global warming is a real thing. I guess. <laughs> Other than that, the summer has been fine. Very busy, but 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 good. Good. Yes, and and speaking of you being very busy, John, I want to start things off with you. Uh, in the past, you've alluded to you've been working on something and you weren't able to announce it publicly just quite yet. But I believe that now you are able to announce your involvement in a project that uh, was recently announced on a grander scope uh, within the last few weeks. Yes, yes. It's the, it's the new uh, Tales from the Territories show that is uh, still still in production. Um, and it's with the uh, combo, combo little tag team action here with uh, the guys from Dark Side of the Ring and uh, Seven Bucks. It's the, you know, the, the, uh, the Rock, his, uh, his, his production company. Dwayne, so. The Rock Johnson's production company. So you say it's still in production. They've already announced it. They've announced the debut date for early October. Yep. Now, I remember reading about South Park, and there have been times when an episode of South Park was still being worked on the day it was going to air. <laughs> so hopefully we don't get into that much of a time crunch. I know they're having several episodes, so I'm sure they have the first several in the can and are maybe finishing up. Uh, so, John, what exactly was your role in this project? My role did change. It's still evolving as we, as we speak, believe it or not, even in the, the post-production phase. Initially... I was brought on. Uh, it was myself and uh, Jack. I'm, I always botch his last name terribly, and I feel horrible about it. Uh, Jack Encarnaccio, I want to say, from the Lapsed Fan Podcast. He worked with the Dark Side guys on the very heavily on the steroid trial episode from that season. And we were just brought in. Basically, we'd have you know the Zoom meetings, and we would you know discuss like, oh well, what what territories do we think would be good. Um, which, which, which stories from those territories, which, which, which guys who are still alive and with us would be able to, to tell those stories. So it was sort of, uh, I hate to use the word pitching, but almost like pitching, pitching those stories to, to the guys and seeing what stuck and then like, you know, seeing how we could get those best told in a, you know, the old campfire, uh, you know, setting with like five guys, five or six guys talking about their old uh, stories from the territory days. So that okay. was that was so, my initial. So we have, uh, aside from the folks behind Dark Side of the Ring, Evan Husney, and besides uh, Dwayne The Rock Johnson, we have at least two other very knowledgeable wrestling historians who helped uh, sort of, you know, outline what was going to be discussed on these episodes. I'm going to assume, yep. uh, particularly since each episode features uh, a round table with wrestlers who were there at the time that, that these are probably going to skew more towards the eighties. Is that correct? 
yeah, most mostly eighties, some seventies stuff. Um, but mostly eighties just cause it's, you know, we wanted to have, uh, preferably we wanted to have guys who were there firsthand, uh, tell those stories. So it's mostly eighties, mid eighties, early eighties, some, some stuff going back to the seventies. And we have a few stories, um, that go back even further that we had some guys that were able to tell either, you know, from firsthand experience or, you know, secondhand experience hearing it from, uh, someone else. So yeah, it's, but it's most, mostly the majority of it is 80s, but some good 70s stuff in there too. So. Well, that's and great. Really, so, yeah. If people, if they already weren't excited about this new series coming to vice, uh, hopefully knowing that you're involved yes. with it is now, you know, the tipping point, it's going to put them over the edge <laughs> and make this must see TV for all our listeners. Uh, yeah. They, when they announced it, it came out of nowhere. Cause I, you know, you, you kayfabe me on this. Yeah, uh, you've, it, you told me uh, some of the projects you're working on. You told me about the Don Leo Jonathan yep. project you're working on, but you didn't tell me about this one. So uh, when it was announced, uh, sometime after our last episode, I, it took me by surprise. So I'm excited about it. Uh, it's going to premiere in early October. Do you know how many episodes uh, are going to make up the first season? I believe it's eight episodes. Eight episodes. Okay. So, uh, so, so fans, think about which eight territories you think are going to be focused. I believe that based on the uh, the trailers that have come out, you can probably guess some of them, but yeah. perhaps uh, for some of the others, we can have a little guessing game and see if our listeners can figure out which mm. episodes will be. I'm going to assume that Mid-South Wrestling is one of them, but don't answer me. Uh, nope, we, I guess we'll, we'll find out, but the precursor <laughs> to Mid-South Wrestling, which was Leroy McGurk's Oklahoma and Louisiana territory, oh, yeah. is the subject of most episodes of this podcast, including this one, because we're going to talk about the third quarter of 1974 in that territory. And the big thing, John, was a big, big, big feud between Ken Mantell and oh, Buck yeah. Robley. Uh, also, Armand Hussein became the first black wrestler to win the North American heavyweight title. Who will save the tag team division? And a whole lot more. We're also, as I mentioned earlier, going to talk about John and I uh, meeting up at City Field for a Mets game. And all the regular features, including John Plays Gordon Soley's Championship Wrestling Trivia. This month I learned. And as always, we kick things off with shit John bought me off eBay. Yes. Yes, indeed. All right. The date, May 29th, 1984. <laughs> the place, the Meadowlands Arena in East Rutherford, New Jersey. And now, John, since both you and I grew up in New York, a lot of our listeners might not know this, but when we watched the WWF television they would plug house shows not only for Madison Square Garden, but also the Nassau Coliseum, as well as the Meadowlands when they ran it, because all three of those venues are in the New York market and were all served by the same TV station. Yep. However, on this night, the Meadowlands was not home to the WWF live yeah, event. It was the site of a pro wrestling supercard promoted mm -hmm. by the National Wrestling Alliance called The Night of champions. Ooh. Yep. Uh, the main event was an NWA world heavyweight title defense as Ric Flair faced Ricky Steamboat. Yeah. Plus Carlos Colon 
took on Tully Blanchard. The Road Warriors took on two men who I've worked with a few times over the years when I worked in independent huh. wrestling, the team of King Kong Bundy and Jimmy Valiant. Uh, I worked with Valiant a lot in Tennessee and Virginia, North Carolina, but I also got to work with Bundy a couple of times in New Jersey. I actually managed him a couple of times, and I believe I wow. managed against him once when I was managing the Honky Talk Man. Wow. Super nice guy. Yeah. Well, when Bundy worked hockey, neither of them are taking any bumps, so they no. need a manager. Literally, <laughs> the, the only bump taken during the match was me. And then afterwards, Bundy kind of sort of rolled up honky tonk man in slow motion for the pin. Gotcha. Also, this sounds like a match right here. Wahoo yeah. McDaniel versus Stan Hansen. That's a big uh, top four lineup, uh, and there was lots more on the card, including Dusty Rhodes, Ronnie Garvin, and others. But this month's eBay item is a souvenir, a memento, if you will, from the Night of Champions, and it is a button. Yeah. And I seem to recall seeing this button advertised in, in uh, the after mags. Yeah. yeah uh, and this, looking at the wear and tear on the back of the button, it seems to be an original, not a yeah. reprint. So no, this no, is no. an original button for Night of Champions. And uh, I guess the vendor that you purchased this from on eBay is uh, called New Wave Wonders. And according to the literature included in the item, they specialize in unique and unusual items of every description since oh, 1975. Wow. So well, listeners, if you're looking for any unique and <laughs> or unusual items of any conceivable description should contact New Wave Wonders. New Wave Wonders. I have to admit, Al, this may not have been the most fiscally responsible of my eBay purchases. Uh-oh. Are we over the $50 limit? Well, only by a little. But, I mean, okay. the, the, the long, trying to make a long story not quite as long. A few months ago, back in the spring, April, May, somewhere around there, I was looking at a bunch of wrestling buttons, pins, pinbacks, whatever you want to call them. Uh, the idea then was I wanted to get you a, an assortment buttons. You know, it'd be really fun, like an assortment of buttons. You know, you could stick them on your jean jacket or whatever. Yeah. You know? um, however many I could get for fifty bucks. I eventually got outbid, you know, on on all of them. <laughs> so and and ended up ended up having it something different. I think that uh, uh, that may have been the month that I had to get you the Eugene pillow. Um, so of course I set up the old recurring search and made a promise to myself that the next time I saw one of those buttons. I would make it yours regardless of the price. And that price happened to be, you know, around $50 for this one. So that's, okay. uh, that's, that's that. So well, that's how go. they get you, man. That's how they get you. They, they, they do. You, well, buttons, wrestling buttons are making a comeback. I know a lot of the uh, indie promotions and wrestlers have buttons uh, for sale at their merchandise tables. Because, you know, nowadays the indie wrestlers have so much more than just eight by tens and maybe a shirt. Okay. at their table. Uh, so buttons seem to be one of the things that wrestling fans nowadays uh, are, are purchasing. So yeah. perhaps I will wear this uh, next time uh, I go to a baseball game. There you go. There you See go. if I can get some uh, people uh comment on it. Yes. So yeah, that was this month's shit. John bought me off eBay. Recall he is authorized to spend approximately $50 of my money every month. And apparently uh, this month, as sometimes happens, he goes slightly over, but it's not the end of the world. 
Okay, no good. big deal. Some months he goes under. So uh, it, it all evens out in the end. So Ken Mantell and Buck Robley. This was a, a huge feud in the summer of 1974, actually longer than that. It started in May and went through October. As the summer began, Robley put a bounty out on the head of the NWA World Junior Heavyweight Champion, Ken Mantell, and this led to a few outsiders, wrestlers that actually weren't currently wrestling for Leroy, to come in and try and collect the bounty. And these included Tarzan Baxter, who had been here before but was wrestling at the time in Gulf Coast as the pro, the masked pro. And the other bounty hunter was Terry Funk. Terry faced Ken Mantell on July 22nd in Shreveport and on the 25th in Chalmette, Louisiana. With Mantell defeating Funk as well as the other bounty hunters, this cleared the way for more singles bouts between he and Robley. All told, John, there are at least 78 singles matches between the two, and quite a few tag matches with one of them on each side of a tag team bout, between April and November. Now, many of these bouts were title matches. Obviously, Mantell was the world junior heavyweight champion. But there were other stipulation bouts as well. And as with many feuds in this era, the stipulations and the progression of the feud differed in each market. You can see all of the known matches with stipulations, results, and details when available for these 78 bouts in our coverage of this time period on my blog at www.chartingtheterritories.com in the Anatomy of a Feud section. Buck Robley, let's, uh, we're going to talk a little bit about him in detail later, but quickly, this was not too long after he debuted for the territory, so he got a pretty big push right off the bat. The, uh, I love, like, the, <laughs> I love bounties in general. Oh, yeah. I'm, I'm a big fan of bounties, but I, I love, like, in, in, in the blog, you mentioned that, uh, I think it was the Alexandria newspaper where they mentioned like the feud started when Robley attacked uh, Mantel in like a motel parking lot. Yes. Is that what? <laughs> That's yeah. Fantastic. And whether that was a TV angle or whether that was something that was specific to Alexandria, unfortunately, that's one of the mysteries of this time period is that we don't really know for sure what, you know, the TV looked like uh, in different markets. We know at this period they primarily they had one primary TV taping. I know at some point, not too long after this, they were doing an additional TV taping in Fort Smith, Arkansas, which I believe would have been for Leonard Clay's towns of Fort Smith, Wichita Falls, and Hot Springs. But what we don't know is what they did with the main TV as they cycled it around to the different markets, how much of the content was uh, specialized for each market. So the, the, the angle in Alexandria about the attack in the motel parking lot might not have been a territory-wide angle. It might have just been something they did to juice up the feud in Alexandria. Um, in Shreveport, the feud had a total of six matches, and it was split up into two separate three-match series, one in May and then one in August and September. In Chalmette, which was just outside of New Orleans, and it's the venue they ran weekly 
uh, to cover the New Orleans market. They also had six matches, with the first three taking place over three consecutive weeks in May and June. Then they came back in August for two weeks straight and then had one final bout in October. Meanwhile, in Baton Rouge, they had seven matches that were spread out fairly evenly over a several-month period. So again, as much as, particularly if you're a fan of the 80s, when the loop was pretty concrete and whatever happened in Memphis, for example, happened a week later in Louisville, Evansville, Nashville, or for Mid-South, they had that five-week bicycle and it would start with Shreveport and New Orleans and then work its way to the other towns. And it was always the same sequence. And when the TV set up a, a ladder match or when they set up, uh, you know, the, the loser must shine the shoes of the uh, winner, it was in the same sequence throughout the territory every single time. But here in this era, it was not like that. And each town based on how well the feud drew, had some leeway in determining how to set up the finishes and how to set up the stipulations for the rematches. And there's another interesting thing that you can see in this feud, and that is how it made its way to the spot towns at the end of the cycle. And this is where I think we really want to talk about what spot shows are because they they're a different they have a different feel than a typical show in a weekly market the idea is in a weekly town you want to have something happen at the end of the show that wets fans appetites to come back the following week either a controversial finish to set up a rematch or um, a new contender emerging by winning in the semi-main event and then coming out and challenging the winner of the main event to set up a match between those two the following week. A spot show, which is a card in a small town that is run very infrequently, often just once a year, you don't want to, you, you don't need to set anything up. And most of the time on these cards the babyface wins clean in the main event. And for that reason, you don't often see a feud match be the main event of a spot show. In fact, a lot of times it's just a tag match. It might be, you know, two two of the top babyfaces, maybe the number one and number two babyface against the number two and number three heel, and the number one baby pins the number three heel. So for these... You're you're looking at like we're like hot springs. Yeah, uh, and yeah. If, if you go, City. Yeah, if you go to the blog and look at the anatomy of the feud, not only do I list all the matches by city, but it's done chronologically by when the first match happens in each city. And as you go all the way down the list towards the very end, there are three spot towns that had one singles match between Mantell and Robley, and that is Hope, Arkansas. And then the two you mentioned, Morgan City, Louisiana, and Hot Springs, Arkansas. And while I don't know if we had finishes for those, I'd be willing to wager a significant amount of money that the babyface went over clean in those because the angle had, by this point, made its way through most of the towns. Some of them probably still had the one last blow-off going, but here... You just want to make the fans happy, and this time you're giving them a hot angle that they saw on TV, but... Now that the angle has run its course, they're able to put the babyface over clean and send those fans home happy and having a good time. And then next year, 
when the show comes back around, they remember they had such a good time last year and they had fun and they enjoyed it and their favorites won that they're going to go take the kids, take the family, take the neighbors to see it again. <laughs> exactly. But this feud, oh. it really cemented the status of both men in the territory. Uh, it was just December of 1973 when Ken Mantell was chosen as the heir apparent to Danny Hodge when Hodge was leaving for an extended run in Florida. And as for Robley, as we said, he had just really debuted as a full-timer in the territory a few months earlier. So this made him a star, and he'd end up being a big part of the promotion on and off yeah. for almost a decade, yeah. not only in the ring, but behind the scenes as well. And every clip I've seen... He's wearing that damn yellow shirt. <laughs> Says, don't oh, yeah. call me yellow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What an interesting, like, such a, such an interesting character. One of those real, like, old school, like, you, you hear people use the word carny yeah. when describing him a lot of time. And I don't really know how much we should, you know, consider that term, a, you know, pejorative or disparaging in terms of a guy with a career in wrestling where and when Buck Robley was involved in it, you know? Um, he, he, you know, these were the type of people that were drawn to pro wrestling as a profession in the sixties and seventies. Yeah. It's just, uh, you know, these are people that are not suited to sell insurance or, no. or you know, to, or to, to own a hardware store in town or anything like that. These were people that uh, were often on the fringes of society. Yeah, I mean, as far as booking, we know he booked for for Watts. We know he booked for Central States, Georgia. I guess the, the Funks, maybe West Texas. I think. Uh, was any, I think. Uh, I think. Yeah, that's right, Georgia. Because I well, there was a story about Butch Reed coming to Georgia mm -hmm. and was worried because he heard that Robley was the booker, and apparently he had, uh, thought that Robley didn't like him. But by the time Reed got there, Robley had already was already gone, so Reed was fine. That, it's a great transition for my next question, my, my next Buck question. Um, I think it's in uh, Meltzer's obituary for Buck Robley. He refers to him as a as a hotshot booker. Um, what what would you do? You know of any examples of like Robley's hotshot booking? Like I don't, I'm not really sure what I I that don't. Means yeah, I don't really know. I do know that uh, Jim Cornette. On one of his podcasts a while back, had a great answer to a question when when people were talking about was Mid South hot shotting in late 1984 when everything was super hot, but they were running so many angles. And you know, Cornette basically explained hot shotting is not running big angles. Look, if things are clicking, keep doing them. Hot yeah. shotting is a a sort of a desperation move where you're intentionally trying to make something out of nothing. So I don't really know if Dave was speaking of a particular time period or place in Robley's career. Also, as much as we know, he booked for Mid-South. I don't quite know the exact start date and end dates. As we've said before, both he and Ernie Ladd claim to have been Booker uh, when JYD you know, became a superstar. Yeah. And that seems unlikely. So, yeah. you know, bookers are just like politicians. When it, when things are going well, it was because of them. When things go bad, it was because of their boss or external, you know. Yeah. And, and, and everyone who had their, you know, their their 
their their spoons in the in the stew from you know seventy nine to eighty one wants to wants to take, take credit some credit for a dog. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like a dog in the freezer. So <laughs> you know, the question is, who is Buck Robley? Oh uh, yeah. And you know, when we first when we first started uh, prepping for this episode, we couldn't really find a lot of information on his life before wrestling. Um, Greg Oliver with Slam Wrestling wrote an article when Robley passed away in May 2013. But unlike most of Greg's articles, there's little in the way of his life before wrestling. In fact, according to the article on Slam Wrestling, it stated that Robley's real name was Phil Buckley. Yet, most every other source I've seen listed it as Phil Robley. And there was no birth date. Uh, I found a birth date in a couple of spots. Uh, I think it was January 1945. But sure. uh, just like Battleship Johnson, where we originally weren't <laughs> sure of what his yeah. real first name was, and the, it was, you know, the two most common names in the world, Dan and Bob, it becomes yeah. very hard to find out things about him. So now, armed with the knowledge that his name is either Phil Robley or Phil Buckley, Yep. knowing that he was likely born in 1945. And, of course, knowing that aside from Phil or, you know, Robley or Buckley, you also need to look for Philip, Robley or Buckley. John, yeah. you took on the task of looking through newspaper articles online and Ancestry.com mm -hmm. to see what you oh, yeah. could find. And, of course, if you do find anything, you need to go through, through some additional steps to mm -hmm. vet the info. Oh, yeah. So, uh, you know, we had to cast a wide net. And if you found anything interesting or particularly saucy or juicy, <laughs> then you really need to do everything you can to make sure that this is our God. Because, you know, yeah. we, we don't want to say Buck Robley, you know, did this horrible or funny thing in 1962. And it yeah. turns out it was a, a different person that just happened yeah. to have the same name. And John, you did find something a little juicy. Yeah, I so, found a life find. So before uh, before we discuss what you found, okay. I want for you to walk our <laughs> listeners through what you did after finding that to help prove beyond a reasonable doubt that the person in question, whose name was Phil Robley, was yeah. indeed our Buck Robley. So John, sort of walk us through the uh, the, the process. Yep. After well, the first. You know, like you said, we the Phil Buckley name. First, I was able to rule that out because there's really no no good hits for a, a Phil or Philip Buckley that fit into you know Buck Robley right. so, but, profile. So we found we found these articles about Phil Robley, and you you have the date of the article. So the first step is basically to say, does the age that this person would have been in the when this article was published matched up with what we believe Buck Robley's age would have been at the same time. Yeah, the, and, the yeah, the, fir so the it first did. article, yeah, right. the first article was from September 19th, 1963 of the Lafayette Indiana Journal and Courier. Um and there the 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 Phil Robley in question is listed as 18 years old. Okay. So so the age matches up. Yep. And then the other piece of information that you now have acquired uh, is Lafayette, Indiana, was the newspaper where the story about this person was published. 
So yep. now the question is, can we find any connection between Buck Robley and the state of Indiana? Indeed, we can. Uh, just from the, the the process of going through, you know, just the just the old regular old uh, wrestling ring results or, or ads, um, I found multiple occasions where Phil was being billed. I think Florida and Amarillo both. He was uh, billed as being from Indianapolis, Indiana. Okay. Which is, and so, so that doesn't mean for a fact that he had to have been from there for real, but it makes it more likely. Yeah. Uh, again, for me, I take this from an actuarial process. You're very slowly, slowly narrowing down, you know, uh, to things to a, you know, beyond a reasonable doubt. We might never be able to get 100%, but given the age matches up and given that Buck Robley the professional wrestler had some ties to Indianapolis and these, this incident happened not too far from there in Lafayette, Indiana. This seems, it seems you're on the right track, but yeah. then where'd you go from there to get even more sure? Well, from there it's interesting in that article. They also, uh, Phil is listed as the grandson of Mr. And Mrs. Frank Thompson. Um, list their address rather than his parents' address. Um, then I went to Ancestry.com, started looking for some stuff, um, and I was able to find Phil's marriage license. Um, and from there, you know, it uh, listed the Thompsons as his maternal grandparents, his mother's name being, you know, Margaret Thompson and his father's name being uh, Joseph Robley. Uh, so that very, very helpful as well. Um, and after that, I was able to find some uh, little high school yearbook stuff from the Frankfurt High School. Uh, what's the That's Frankfurt, in Frankfurt, Frankfurt, Indiana, and it's sort of halfway yep. between Lafayette, Indiana, and Indianapolis. Now, John, I have a question for you. Frankfurt High School, what were their sports teams' nicknames? <laughs> I was just getting to that. They're the Frankfurt Hot Dogs, Al. You get it, listeners? The Frankfurt <laughs> hot, dogs. hot Dogs. Oh, I want some merch. Um, but I found a couple high school photos from, from Phil's freshman and sophomore years. And there's photos of photos of Phil Robley as the uh, treasurer of his freshman class. I hope they didn't send him to the racetrack. Um, <laughs> I don't know. Phil maybe they the... did. I mean, <laughs> yeah. again, we talk about this, but... The, the the as you said the carnies in pro wrestling actually were, were pretty good at uh, at gambling or, or better than average so maybe <laughs> yeah. you did want to send him to the track maybe yeah. he could you know he could look a horse in the eye and know <laughs> if he was going to win or not or or perhaps he was carny enough that he could pay the other the trainers and jockeys of the other horses to take a dive yeah yeah or maybe yeah maybe cowboy bob ellis was, was yeah was so the there. pictures so the pictures. Um, we're going to post three pictures, as you mentioned, one of him with the other freshman officers, the president, vice president, secretary, and him as the treasurer. And yep. then another one of him with the freshman basketball team, the Frankfurt hot dogs. And those two, you know, you can see, yeah, this does kind of look like Buck. But then there's a picture taken in a sophomore year where it's just it's crystal clear. Yeah, it's definitely yeah. So between yeah, between that and between the the grandparents' names matching up with with surnames found on his marriage license, we've got our match. 
yep. which is good because now we can talk about the fun story and the fun shenanigans <laughs> that Buck Robley got into when he was 18 years old. And given that this was in the fall of uh, the year he was 18, I'm going to guess it was after he graduated high school. He presumably had graduated in the uh, in the spring, assuming he graduated, of course, yep. in the spring or early summer of 1963. So this happened a few months later. And yeah, so it's fair to say beyond a reasonable doubt that the Phil Robley, who was sent to Carroll County Jail in September of 1963, was indeed the future Buck Robley. So yeah. Carroll County Jail, John, what did he do? He apparently, from the, the, the article, it seems like Phil got into a little, little squabble over, over a young lady. Um, and during the squabble, a bystander, an observer, if you will, uh, was struck in the head, which was what was referred to as a heavy, heavy instrument. Um, and what's interesting, uh, well, a week later, Phil's back in the news. Yeah, well, let's let's talk about this one first because ahead. it's okay. not. Yeah, it's not just you know, <laughs> Phil. It was a apparently I don't want to call it a gang fight, but there were two groups of youths. Yeah, one one group from Frankfurt and the other, I guess, from a nearby town of Flora, and yep. they they were all. I don't know if they were all involved in this altercation, like a baseball, you know, bench clearing brawl, or if they were just forming a circle around, you know, two of the uh, primaries. Yeah. But as you mentioned, a observer that may not have been part of the fight was hit with uh, what we eventually come to learn was was a gun. And thank goodness they were only hit with the gun. But yeah, so this is Phil Robley, 18 Uh, years old, and also Robert Lane, who is 18 years old. And both of them ended up in Carroll County Jail uh, after they after charges of assault and battery were filed against them. And it was a fight somehow over a girl that involved, you know, almost two dozen young men from two different towns. But now, as you alluded to, John, a week later, while in jail, Robley finds himself in the news again. Yep. Yep. This time, this time uh, of a foiled jailbreak attempt, which oddly enough, one of the guys he was plotting to break out of jail with was the same guy that he was quarreling with for these young ladies. Uh, no, I, no, I think they were on the same side. I oh, think they were, they were both side. part of the Frankfurt gang or whatever uh, we want to call I may it. Have misread that one. Yeah. Yeah. No, they weren't fighting against one another. They were both arrested oh. in the assault on the innocent bystander. That's how I read it. Okay. So, I, I, yeah. I, I misread them as being from two separate. Two separate no, factions. I don't. I don't believe so. I don't believe this is the the nation of domination versus uh, the disciples <laughs> of the apocalypse. This is the uh, this is the the or the Montagues and the Capulets. Uh, this is uh, two men uh, doing things that young men do and ending up in jail. But yes, yeah, so while in jail, the two of them and one other individual uh, apparently were in the early planning stages of a breakout, of a bust out, of a jailbreak, when the sheriff said he took a knife and, quote-unquote, other things away from the trio in a shakedown, shakedown. in jail. Yeah. And that article goes on to say that uh, Robley's friend, Bobby Lane, was uh, was charged with assault and battery in, in a gunfight in which 13 Frankfurt youths and eight 
Flora youths were said to have taken part. So a week before it was nine on nine, but apparently now it's 13 on eight. And perhaps as the legend grows, it's going to end up like Shawn Michaels outside that bar where he fought off 800, you know, Marines until the last one got him from behind with a crowbar. <laughs> yeah. And you were speaking like of, uh, you know, him graduating. And I, it's odd because you mentioned that because I couldn't find any junior or senior yearbook stuff for him. So I don't know if he changed schools or dropped out or what. It's, it's, yeah, it's it, interesting, like I mentioned. We uh, don't like know. Obviously, yeah. we, you know, given what he was doing and not long, you know, after his 18th birthday, one can make assumptions, but that doesn't necessarily mean anything. Uh, yeah. But we, he doesn't appear to have continued along with the hot dogs. Perhaps he switched, <laughs> perhaps he switched over to the burgers. The burgers. Maybe, yeah. uh, maybe there's a town, Hamburg, Indiana, and he jumped <laughs> to them. So, yeah, so the, the pictures from the high school yearbook, as well as these two articles, uh, we will post on Twitter shortly after this episode comes out. So be sure to follow me at Al Getz Wrestling. That's Al G-E-T-Z Wrestling. And you can see, particularly from the photo of him as a sophomore, it clearly is Buck Robley. So oh, yeah. we know where he grew up. We know where he went to at least two years of high school. And we know that he played basketball and apparently also track and field while uh, a while a hot dog and that he had a little dust up with the law <laughs> as an 18 year old. Yeah. Now, as far as his wrestling career goes, John, you found some YouTube footage of Robley in action. And uh, as always, you curate uh, some some recommendations on the YouTube footage. And again, mm-hmm. just like the pictures on Twitter, we're going to post links to these matches on Twitter, and we're going to go in chronological order. First up is Robley versus Tommy Rich from May 1981 in Georgia. Mm-hmm. And this match is part of a, a YouTube video that's, I believe, a full episode of Georgia Championship Wrestling. And later in the episode, a little bit after the match, they show footage of Robley attacking Rich, yeah. who had a bounty on his head. We're talking about bounties earlier. There's a bounty yeah, angle yeah. here in Georgia. And who placed who placed the bounty on Tommy Rich, John? Michael Hayes, Michael P.S. Oh, Hayes, Michael Hayes. And, and it's really interesting because if you recall, Robley was the one in Mid-South who initially was feuding with the Freebirds when Junkyard Dog came to his rescue. Yeah. And now, of course, they they kind of sort of acknowledge uh, DiBiase having a pass with the Freebirds and I believe Junkyard Dog as well. But perhaps they didn't mention Robley's part in it, or maybe they did to make it even more shocking when yeah. Robley is now a hired gun attempting yeah. to collect the bounty. But he basically, they do a shoulder injury angle with Tommy Rich yep. here. They, and then they, after that, we have Robley from Houston in late 1981 against a young Terry Allen, the future mm-hmm. Magnum TA. So we talk about a established babyface matinee idol, Tommy Rich in 1981, and a future matinee idol, Magnum TA, also in 1981. Uh, Compare and contrast, John, the two of them in the ring in 1981. Well, uh, in ring, Tommy Rich is Tommy Rich in the ring. Uh, You know, there's, you know, the the Thez Press finish and, and Tommy Rich has the, has the baby face fire. I was 
honestly, I was more impressed with young Ter- Terry Allen. Um, a, a lot of credit for, for young Terry Allen here, who you're looking at Terry Allen, who's like a young, hot stud, you know, and Buck Robley, who looks like Buck Robley. And you're thinking, how does this crazy, weird looking old dude stand a chance against this jacked up young guy? But they're a, he's able to pull it off. Buck Robley's able to pull it off. They make it believable with the selling and Buck using his nefarious tactics. Um, you know, even the, 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 yeah, even the match with with Buck and Tommy Rich isn't really all that exciting. Buck does a, a, a convincing job of acting and looking looking like a like a real maniac. Uh, you know, and shouting ten thousand dollars while he's stomping Tommy Rich, um, but the match really isn't anything special. The 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 like you said, the the angle after where he attacks uh, Tommy is really yeah. More since it's, since it's a TV match, it's it's not necessarily going to have some some substance, some meat to it. Yep. Whereas the match versus uh, Magnum is uh, a house show match from Houston. And, and Magnum yep. at this time, Terry Allen, is 22 years old. He was born in June of 1959. So he's, yeah, he's 22 years old. And I some sources say he debuted in the late 70s, but it seems that his earliest runs in territories were in 1981. So he may still be a rookie huh? Yeah, at this point in time. And, and if not, not much more seasoned than that. But I thought this was a good a good showing for 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 young young Terry Allen here. Um, I was almost like I, I I honestly thought like they would have him steal like a quick pin or go to like a time limit draw. Honestly, but uh, alas, no. Yeah, no, he wasn't. It wasn't ready for that yet. No, 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 no. Uh, and then from there, after that, the, those two matches from 1981, we have a year later. Well, actually, less than a year later, but in the year 1982. All Japan Wrestling with uh, Buck Robley versus Giant Baba. Oh, boy. Which yeah. I have a feeling is is a little slower paced <laughs> than uh, what, what Terry Allen might have uh, you know been wanting to do in December 1981. Yeah. And, and then from there, we've got some footage from the late 80s from Southern Championship Wrestling, which was run first by Jerry Blackwell and then later on by Joe Pettisino. And this is from 1988, and it's an angle where Mr. Wrestling 2 receives a present during a TV taping. It's brought out in a giant box, and we watch this now, and we all know that there's somebody inside of it. This is, you know, this is like the Sting angle in WCW, which was just a few years later. But yeah, this is one of those oldie but goodie angles. And who should come out of the box but Buck Robley, who attacks Mr. Wrestling number two. And then from there, there's also footage of a match, a lumberjack match between the two. So, John, you, you seem to be getting uh, excited just even reminiscing about this angle. So tell I us love- about the giant box <laughs> containing a yellow belly. I just love it. It's it's the best. I mean, there's a match going on in the ring, right? Just, I forget. I don't even know who it is in the ring. Two guys, maybe a tag team match. I don't know. And someone just wheels in this giant box on a hand truck. Yeah. Yeah. And it's got <laughs> a bow on it. In front of the ring, and Joe Pettisino is screaming. I think like we can't take deliveries. We can't take deliveries. <laughs> like it's looking like it's a UPS guy stumbling upon the set. You know, it's, you know, 
And then they, then they say it's addressed to Mr. Wrestling too. You know, maybe it's from a fan. You know, but it's labeled "Warning and Danger." <laughs> so, That's how you should send my eBay items, John. <laughs> Warning, danger. <laughs> and you know, two wrestling two comes out, and I, I love he's wearing the the suit and tie and the mask. I love that look. It's a the great great look. And he's like, let me let me just put an end to this. I'll go and open it. And the announcer's like, no, wrestling two, no, we're on live TV. Be careful. Yeah, and two's like, I've dealt with danger ever since I was rocked out of the cradle. <laughs> and I just imagine the visual. I can't get this out of my head. I, I'm laughing out loud to myself. Of him in the cradle with a mask? With a mask, a diaper <laughs> and a mask. Um, so two walks over to the box, like sort of pushes it, knocks it around. Out comes Buck Rowley, just like a maniac waving his arms around. And like the announcer just screaming, like this man has been in a hospital for four years. And they and they don't quite tell you what kind of hospital, but no. uh, there's a, there's a, it reminds me a little bit of uh, Howling Mad Murdoch from the A Team. Yeah, it's one of those hospitals. You know where he? Yeah, he's there. They don't want to say the nut house, but that's you know what they're implying. Yeah, Robley's yeah. a madman, and if if Robley would Robley was never the most in shape man during his prime. Oh boy! Imagine what he looks like in 1988. But again, the fans don't care about that. No, you know they they don't. They, yeah, they're they're you know for a little for a TV crowd, and this was aired on WATL in Atlanta. And about a decade later, that was the home for uh, NWA Wildside, featuring huh. yours truly, Al yeah. Getz, uh, among many, many others. So, yeah, they, I was on the same TV station as uh, this great Buck Robley and Mr. Wrestling 2 angle. And they sort of, in, in, in the next match that we're about to talk about, they sort of, they, the announcers sort of make it more explicit exactly what kind of hospital <laughs> Buck Robley has been in. <laughs> uh, the uh, Lumberjack match there. Yeah. Oh, God, yeah. Uh, we got Lumberjacks. I forget. We got Dick Slater, Tommy Rich, Manny Fernandez, Kareem Muhammad there. And to be fair, this is the late 80s. These guys, like I said, these are the late 80s. These guys, are, these guys are old, not in the best shape of their careers. But, like, Robley did this his whole career, just, like, talking about, like, getting a, a guy getting the most out of the least. Yeah. You know? At, 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 at his best, he looked not great. You know, and at his worst, he looks super skeevy, you know, but he's able to like draw you in with him being like a weird maniac. And I, it's like, I don't know. I hate to get deep and stuff about this, but I really think there's a lot to be learned from like the psychology of a guy. I don't know if you call him a worker, like, but, but like, well, as, as long as nowadays fans understand that, that this is a show and they're playing characters, you can't do that. But back then, mm, it's believable yeah. that someone like Robley is batshit crazy, even though he looks like, you know, nothing special. But, that he, you know, if he sells it that he's just absolutely batshit crazy and, you know, will do anything, then that yeah. adds the believability. Whereas nowadays, it's hard to do that. And that's why it's more cosmetic, you know, nowadays than it is. And, and why, you know, even the smaller guys, they still, you know have to look like stars. They have to look legit. You look at guys like Daniel Bryan, uh, or sorry, Brian Danielson and Daniel Garcia, you know, for, for whatever you say about Daniel Garcia's size, everything he does is believable. And, and mm -hmm. he, his, he's created his character understanding 
that his size is a limitation. So, you know, he, he, he knows what the character of Daniel Garcia can do and can't do. And he sticks with what he does do well. And I mean, you know, I, I got to see him at the scenic city invitational, uh, you know, right before he blew up last year, last year, he was part of the, uh, the tournament that my friends do every year in Chattanooga, Tennessee, featuring independent wrestlers, mostly from the area, but with a few outsiders brought in. And literally between the time they booked him and the time the tournament happened, he had already, he had blown up. Oh, and wow. within, I think, a week or two was when he had his first AEW appearance. And and the guy is legit. I, I, again, I don't know if he's going to become a, you know, super duper superstar like The Rock or Stone Cold or anything like that. I highly doubt it. But... To the AEW fans, he is a, a a tremendous asset because he brings something uh, to the table, you know, that that puts him on par with guys like Danielson and uh, Claudio and, and those wrestlers and, and, you know, Regal Stable. And he's sort of having his little go with that. Uh, yeah. So, yeah. But back then, it was all about making the fans believe. And as long as yep. everybody, including the wrestlers' opponents, you know, played it off like this guy is is you know is a threat then the fans will believe yeah. it and and in fact some of the fans might you know get really excited by it and some of the female fans John might get even more excited about all these <laughs> men rolling around oh, yeah. so we're going to talk about right. an article oh yeah um and I've posted this on Twitter before, but it's a great, great article. It is from the June 4th, 1978 edition of the Cedar Rapids Gazette from Cedar Rapids, Iowa. Mm-hmm. And it is titled Ring Rats Infest Professional <sighs> Wrestling. And it is yeah, about yeah. a bunch of women who uh, are self-proclaimed ring rats. And this is in 1978. And this is really, you know, usually when we when you and I look through these newspapers, John, about once every couple of years each newspaper has an article about pro wrestling. You know, it's wild, it's wacky, but don't tell your grandma it's fake. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. this is one of those articles, except it's a, a whole different uh, vibe because it is talking about the ring rats. Yeah. Uh, and it's notable. Um, and it's while we're talking about why we're talking about it now, uh, there's a quote where one of the women says that Buck Robley is the nicest and the most intelligent. And then her friend adds, and he's got the most money too. Yeah. So in central States in 1978, Buck Robley was a wealthy, wealthy man by local standards, apparently, and could have his pick of any woman. And then, and uh, at the end of the article, when they talk about the female fan making out with the blue Yankee, and he has his mask on. Yeah. Just like you were talking about Mr. Wrestling 2 in the crib with a mask. Now we yeah. have, uh, yes, masked wrestlers wearing their masks at all yeah. times. And yeah. confirming that wrestlers do indeed have orgies, I think. Is, uh, yeah, of course. <laughs> why would you? Why would you? Yeah. The article is, of course, prefaced by uh, an editor's note that the article uh, contains language that may be considered offensive by some people. But yeah, and, and and they do deliver. Uh, they yeah. definitely <laughs> deliver on that promise. Yeah, they do. So, yeah, do. so Buck Robley, a wild and wacky man, and as we have learned, probably a wild and wacky youth as well, given the one incident that we found about him from his younger days. Oh, yeah. So... Yeah, we know a little bit more about the man who became Buck Robley. 
and besides Buck and besides Ken Mantell, several other wrestlers frequented the main events during the third quarter of 1974 in Oklahoma and Louisiana. And using our spot ratings, which you can see on the blog, www.chartingtheterritories.com, the main eventers in the summer, all of whom had an average weekly spot rating of 0.80 and above, were on the babyface side, you have Ken Mantell, Bob Sweetan, Arman Hussein, and Grizzly Smith. And yes, I know two of those four babyfaces are not very good people, but shut up. Just just go along. And on the heel side, we have Buck Robley, Skandor Akbar, Bull Ramos, and Rip Tyler. Now, other feuds going on over the summer. Uh, again, the Mantel-Robley feud was far and away the biggest feud. Um, but other feuds going on were Hussein versus Akbar, which is interesting when you think about it. You have uh, both, well, Akbar was born in America. Uh, Hussein, no one seems to know, although we think he was born in Texas. So both of these men might have been born in Texas, but you have a black man, uh, you know, of, uh, and you have Skandor Akbar of, I believe, Lebanese descent, and they're feuding. And Hussein, uh, you know, someone named Arman Hussein being a babyface in 1974 is, you know, pretty surprising. Yep. And the fact that Akbar was a babyface for many years until turning heel in 1973, uh, you know, uh, perhaps wrestling promoters were slightly less racist and xenophobic uh, than than we thought they were. Yeah. Slightly. Slightly. <laughs> Other feuds were Sweetan versus Skandor Akbar, Sweetan versus Rocket Monroe, and Bull Ramos versus Grizzly Smith. Mm-hmm. And we mentioned Hussein. He beat Bull Ramos on July 27th in Shreveport to win the North American title. And it was noted in a newspaper article that Hussein was the first and they used the term non-white to win the title, which begs the question: uh, Does that mean Bull Ramos is is white? Well, <laughs> okay. Here's here. This is this is. I think in I think Apache Bull Ramos in 1974 would have been considered non-white. I guess it really depends on the time. Because I think like further back, like Jim Crow era, right. um, I'm not sure which state, I want to say Oklahoma, Native Americans were legally white. So I think it depends on the time and place and the law. Okay. That's really interesting and really weird and, and crazy how, um, you know, the idea of being, you know, quote unquote, white um, like how much of that comes from like the, 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 the naturalization acts and like where anyone, you know, in the late 1700s where anyone could become a citizen if they were, you know, a, a free white person, you know, so that yeah. you have all these cases, you know, where racial prerequisite cases like through up through like the 1940s where, you know, it, you're, you're, you're just you're saying, OK, yes, you're white. No, you're not. You know, so you have so much of that. Um, so I think nowadays, like on the, the census, um, it's like white Hispanic is a is a is a is a race. Yeah, there, there so, are a lot more categories. Yes. Now. Yes, yes, yes. And and yes. so so whatever you know, however you feel about that term, we we can say that Hussein was the first black wrestler yes. to win the North American title, which had been around at this point for I think about five years. 
uh, had been held first by Chuck Carbo, then I believe by Watts, then the spoiler, then Dusty, a uh, few other few other folks, and then it hopped around a little bit after Watts left, uh, went to Tank Morgan, then Rip Tyler, then Bull Ramos, and now to Hussein. Now, Hussein's reign was short-lived as about a month later, he loses it to the man he was feuding with, Skandar Akbar. Other title news, Ken Mantell held on to the NWA World Junior Heavyweight title for the entire quarter, except for a title change in the Gulf Coast Territory that was only recognized in Mobile, Alabama. They had brought Mantell in uh, for a title defense against the Wrestling Pro, who, as as we mentioned earlier, was Tarzan Baxter. And this was on September 24th, and there was a controversial finish, and Gulf Coast ended up recognizing the pro as the champion, and in the newspaper it says, quote-unquote, going against the NWA. And this led to several weeks of pro defending the title in Mobile against outsiders who were alleged to have been sent by the NWA. And these included Luthez, Stan Vachon, and a young Mike McCord, who, of course, is Austin Idol, before Mantell finally regained the title in Mobile on November 5th. So not only do you have a title change that is only acknowledged in one territory, but it's only acknowledged in one town. In fact, I looked through my records for all the other towns in Gulf Coast during this time, and none of them acknowledge Tarzan Baxter, the wrestling pro, as the world junior heavyweight champion. Um, when he has singles matches, they're not billed as title defenses. He's not acknowledged as champion. This was a mobile-only angle. And again, this just goes back to what I was saying earlier and what we've been saying on this podcast for its entire run. In this time period, each town could have its own storyline, separate from what's going on in other towns as well, because fans... You know, except for the teeniest, tiniest number of fans who traveled to different towns or who traded, you know, the the bulletins, the newsletters, which, again, was a a just a minuscule, yeah. minuscule yeah. fraction of a fraction of the fan base at large would know what's going on in other towns. But for the most part, the promoters had leeway to uh, create their own narratives in each town. And Mobile, as we've mentioned, was far and away the biggest drawing town in Gulf Coast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I think we talked uh, yeah. about that angle um, maybe like a year or so ago when we talked about Tarzan Baxter on the show, maybe June, July of last year, maybe. I'm a, I'm a real sucker for angles like this, too, where the, you know, the, the Sam Muchnick gets on the horn and sends a telegram and does right. the whole thing. And, that, like, and oh. they did that. that that's, from reading the newspaper articles, that's how this reads, is that, you know, this was Cowboy Bob Kelly, who's Kind of, sort of, he's an active wrestler, but he's also kind of, a, sort of acknowledged as, you know, working for the office. And so it strongly implies that he is, you know, fighting for his local wrestler to be the world yeah. champion, even though the rest of the NWA, you know, it's almost like a stone cold, you know, rebelling yeah. against the man yeah. type of uh, storyline, even though Baxter was a heel at yeah. the time. Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah. Uh, so again, you know, so, you know, and when we're, you know, for people that are into title histories, how, you know, if you are, <laughs> if you want to calculate the number of days Ken Mantell was the NWA World Junior Heavyweight Champion, how do you do it? And let me say, 
there's no wrong answer. If you want to ignore this storyline, I, you know, that's fine. And, and it's not wrong to do so. But think about this. We, over the years, we find things like this. And sometimes they weren't well known. In fact, uh, we, Charting the Territories, learned that one of the title changes from uh, Danny Hodge to Lorenzo Parente was also a town-specific angle in Little Rock. So if we're finding these decades after the fact, that may very well mean there are others that haven't been found. So, uh, again, it's just as far as lineage and, and concrete information on the length of a title reign, it's really hard to do. And then for the U.S. tag team titles in this period of time, you may not want to track the title lineage because... Man, there is a there is a dearth of tag team talent in this territory in the summer of 1974. Uh, in the spring, the champions were two mid-carders, and these were Chief White Cloud and Chief Thundercloud. And for sure, their spot rating really never got above mid-card status, even while holding the titles. So that what what we're basically saying is. They were weak enough that even when they were defending the titles, they're not in the main events. They're lower on the cards. Hmm. Now, at some point prior to June 26th, they lost the titles to the team of Steve Lawler and Jim White. Of course, Jim White, much more well-known for teaming with Jerry Lawler, but this was Steve Gorilla (laughs) Lawler, a.k.a. Steve Kyle. Now, as their reign continued... Lawler and White did move to the upper mid-cards with each of their spot ratings crossing over the 0.60 threshold. Remember, main eventers have a spot rating between 0.8 and 1. Upper mid-carders between 0.6 and 0.8. Mid-carders between 0.4 and 0.6. And anyone with a spot rating below a 0.4 is considered a preliminary wrestler. Other upper mid-carders in the territory at this time included Heels Rocket Monroe, Randy Tyler and Mr. Ito, and Babyface's Dr. X, Johnny Eagles, Luke Brown, Jack Curtis Jr., and a newcomer by the name of Stan Hansen. Yep, yep, yep. So that's that's an interesting crew. And Rocket Monroe ends up by, you know, he's, he's an upper mid-carder for the quarter based on his average weekly spot rating, but by the end of the quarter, he's a main eventer. And he's getting a really big push, which we'll see in the fall when we cover that later on this year on the podcast. But I think with Rip Tyler finishing up, there was a, a spot available for a main event level heel and, and Rocket Monroe was the uh, uh, the best talent available to McGurk at this time. But yeah, he gets a really big push uh, up to the main events. Now, as for Stan Hansen, again, unlike Robley, I think uh, most of our listeners know the the main points of Stan's early life. But there's some things in here that I didn't know, some of the details. So he was born in Knox City, Texas, but went to high school in Las Cruces, 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 New Mexico. John, how do you pronounce that? I'm going with Las Cruces. Las Cruces, okay. I'm going with that. Where he was a standout in football. He, of course, mm-hmm. went to West Texas State along with pretty much every other future professional wrestler in the early 70s. However, one thing I learned, and this isn't the thing I learned this month, but one interesting (laughs) note 
<laughs> is that he majored not only in physical education, but also geography, which I'm sure served him well in later years when yeah. he literally traversed the globe. Indeed. I'm sure that geography education came in handy when he needed to go, when he needed to know how to get, you know, from Denver to Amarillo, for example. <laughs> uh, he played in the World Football League and had two very brief stints on the rosters of the Baltimore Colts and the San Diego Chargers. Now, at one point, Stan was working as a phys ed teacher and wrestling coach back in Las Cruces. Yep. But eventually, he found his way over to the Funk Brothers, Dory Jr. and Terry, and made his pro wrestling debut in January 1973, for Western States sports. And he spent most of the year there and he spent the early part of 1974 there. And he ends up coming to McGurk's territory in the middle of 1974. Now, Stan has a book, uh, came out, uh, with Crowbar Press, Scott Teal's wonderful publishing house. Uh, I don't have a copy of the book, but John, you do. So oh, yeah. as far as the pre-wrestling days, was there anything else in that book? And of course, uh, plug the title of the book so our listeners can find it and purchase it. But anything else of interest about the early life of Stan Hansen? There's a ton of interesting stuff. So feel free to cut me off whenever you like. The, the book is called The Last Outlaw. Um, it's by, by Stan with Scott Teal. So it's an autobiography. Um, it's just a really interesting upbringing uh, just for starters, just his family was, I wouldn't say that they're poor, lower middle class, maybe from the way Stan describes it, you know, once a month they'd have, you know, they'd have a steak from the grocery store. His dad got a good deal on it. Um, and just, and you know, his dad was actually from Brooklyn, Brooklyn, New York, and his mom, uh, from Texas. And his dad was stationed in Texas, uh, prior to getting shipped off to world war two. So that's how they met. And just like he's a guy, he was one of those guys, the athlete from day one, you know, in Texas, when he was a kid, you could play tackle football when you're like in the third or fourth grade. And Stan was always a, a big kid who loved the physicality of it. And, uh, you know, one of the things I learned from the book, too, is like baseball was really his first love, um, <laughs> which is, I kind of love hearing that he, he he was so into baseball. Um like his grandfather on his mom's side played semi-pro ball and his dad played baseball, I think American Legion ball, maybe on a local level. And two of his sons, I, I think played high level college. And one, I think was even drafted, um, by the, by the Mariners. And one of, one of the main reasons he had to give up baseball was during the summer months when he was out of school and baseball season, you know, from the time he was 14, he was working full time, you know, helping his dad, you know, pitching with the bills, you know, uh, their family's main income was Stan's father, you know, dry land farming, which was mostly dependent on rainfall and very unpredictable. So Stan was helping out with that. Um, he tells a bunch of great stories about, uh, like watching, uh, like the, 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 the Dallas Cowboys in their first year, 1960 and the Dallas Texans from the AFL, um, who later became the, the chiefs, I think. And, uh, the visiting teams would come and practice in the area. There's a place called Randall Park. Uh, there are no fences, no yard markers, no goalposts, just a wide open area of park. And uh, the first time Stan rode his uh, bike down, he's like 11 years old, and it's to see the visiting San Diego Chargers. And you know, he'd stand off to the side, get as close as he could, you know, inch closer over time until he was like, you know, 
like you know, like a, a you know, a hundred feet or so from all the action. He's just watching them run their plays and their drills or whatever, and they not really run in his direction that much. But one after one play, one particularly large man is running at young Stan at a an alarming rate of speed, and before Stan has time to react or move, the guy is almost on top of him, and without breaking stride, the guy just hurtles over young Stan Hansen, <laughs> runs for a few more yards, and returns to the huddle. Stan, of course, is like a young football fan. Once he calmed down enough to recognize the guy's number, number 77, he realized that it was Ernie Ladd. <laughs> wow. So, of course, many years later, Stan would tell the story to Ernie Ladd, and they'd have a big laugh, and Ernie would be like, oh, you're making me feel old, Stan Hansen. Um, and he oh, was a ridiculously, great. ridiculously good athlete, excelled at football, getting recruited by you know, colleges. Um, he tells a great story about visiting West Texas state when he was a junior or senior. And, you know, he, you know, met, meets the coach, gets the tour of the campus, courtesy of the senior center on the team. Stan had gotten the whole tour. He'd been on a couple of other tours and he'd always seen the dorms, wanted to see the living space. For some reason, this guy didn't want to show Stan his dorms. He was like, what is going on with this guy? So finally, Stan works up the courage to ask to see the living quarters. And the guy hesitates a bit, but agrees. So walking up to the room, to the stairs, he tells Stan, he's like, look, we all have to have roommates, even the football players. We don't get to choose our roommates, so on and so forth. Guy opens the door, sees two beds. It's almost like a, a line was drawn down the middle of the room, like the invisible line, you know, uh, on the side that belonged to the senior center. Um, you know, a neatly made bed tucked in, like, you know, military corners, you know, whole thing. Um, clean desk, clothes hanging nicely in the closet. Uh, on the other side of the room, newspapers, garbage, just loose, old, half-eaten food, takeout containers, dirty what, clothes. Meltzer? Was Dave Meltzer's roommate? <laughs> no, close. And a big guy sleeping on a bare mattress with no sheets. It's two in the afternoon, and this guy, they've woken this guy up. He rolls over, says hi, goes right back to freaking sleep. And that was the first time that Stan Hansen met Frank Goodish, <laughs> the future <laughs> Bruiser Brody. Oh, so, so this is like, it's like Forrest Gump. It really, has, it, he, it, meets, he meets Ernie Ladd, he meets Frank Goodish, and then years later, it, it oh, goes, wow, that's wild. That, that's just there's so many of those. So like this is the on, last. The last outlaw is the name of the book. Yes, highly recommend. Okay, I'm so. really surprised this book doesn't get enough press. There's like one of the best wrestling boxes. There's so many great stories. Stan's got a great memory, and he's not burying people. He's not putting himself always in need. He's just telling great, great. Yeah, stories. he always he always seemed to be a pretty humble and down to earth guy. Yeah. Um, when talking about his wrestling career, and we've got yeah. some YouTube footage. And I, I wanted, John, I wanted you to find some stuff from the early years of Stan. Obviously, there's some incredible, amazing footage of him in Japan and, you know, in the uh, in the 90s. But we we went earlier than that. And there's a match from 1973, his rookie year in Florida yeah. with Stan against Tosh Togo. And then just a couple of years later in Japan against the Destroyer. And then a tag team match in that same year from All Japan with Stan and Bobby Jaggers yeah. against Giant Baba and Anton Giesink, who is a legendary judoka who wrestled for a few years. Baba, I think, uh, sent him to, the, to Amarillo to train with the Funks. And he had a unspectacular uh, wrestling career, mostly wrestling for All Japan from, I think, 73 to 1978. But then also there's an audio interview on YouTube from 1976 yeah. with Stan Hansen 
being interviewed by the one and only Bill Apter. And, and uh, yeah. of course, Apter being New York centric, there's a lot of talk about Bruno Sammartino. So, uh, John, we'll, we'll, you know, we'll let our listeners watch the uh, match footage, but if you can sort of tell them a little bit about what, what's going on with this interview with Apter, because it's, uh, it's pretty interesting. Oh, I love this. This interview is great. Stan's talking about Watergate and don't trust anyone over 30, like the youth movement. He's all about the youth movement. Um, he talks a lot about the Lariat. Uh, <laughs> and after talks about one of the announcers on TV. I don't know if he's referencing, I don't know, Vince McMahon Jr. or who who is the announcer, but talking about uh, one of the announcers tugging at Hanson's elbow pad and coins falling out of it on live TV, which I just, I just love that. Of all the things you're going to load, Stan Hansen's going to load his elbow pad with, like, <laughs> it's coins, just like loose chain, you know? I love that so much. Uh, and Hansen, of course, you know, says like, oh, the announcer threw those coins down himself trying to set me up, you know? Um, and it's funny, like, it, it, Stan is just really good, you know? I, I, like, after asking about breaking Bruno's neck, and ap- after says that, you know, the, the slam you know, which actually did break Bruno's neck. Uh, he mentions that and the lariat aggravated after the fact. But Hansen is smart enough to, you know, quote, you know, correct, unquote, after here and credit the lariat rather than the slam. You yeah, know, quick on the fly thinking yeah. by it, Stan it, to try and stick with the company line. So, yeah, it's an interesting audio interview. From 1976, yeah, really, really cool. Stan interviewed by Bill Apter, and that's on YouTube. And again, follow me at Al Gets Wrestling. I will tweet out links to all of these, this footage, plus some pictures. Uh, just like you found some high school photos of Buck Robley, you found a couple of Stan <laughs> yeah. from uh, his high school yearbooks. And we'll post those along with the YouTube footage. We'll also post an article from the November 7th, 1971 Canyon News from Canyon, Texas, about the time that Stan Hansen accidentally stole a car. And now normally <laughs> yeah. when you say someone accidentally stole a car, they didn't accidentally steal a car. However, reading this story, I'm inclined to believe that, yeah, he actually truly <laughs> did unintentionally, accidentally steal a car. So, John, don't go through the whole thing, but uh, just paint a picture. And then our listeners, if they want to uh, read the rest of the article, we'll put that out on Twitter. Yeah, it's basically like after uh, I think I think Stan at this point was a senior at West Texas, and he was also the assistant coach of the freshman team. Um, I think after 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 a game, uh, Hanson wanted to borrow the you know the head coach's uh, car. Um, you know, the coach. You know, love Stan, trust me. He's like, okay, it's the station wagon out back with the keys in it. And to hear what <laughs> happens next, although you can probably figure out the uh, the interesting points, but this story gets pretty funny on how, how everything comes to a head. Uh, you can check that out on Twitter. But yeah, you know, back in those days, people left keys in their car. People left their doors unlocked. It's uh, It was a different time. It was a different world. And so, yes, Stan Hansen once accidentally stole a car. Yeah. And you could, yeah, you could yeah. really hear like in his voice, like the aw shucks, <laughs> <laughs> like it couldn't have been a more honest mistake. Yeah. Really, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's great. So back to the tag team ranks. We talked about Steve Lawler and Jim White being the U.S. tag team titles at this time in the 
third quarter of 1974. The only other regular tag teams are the former champs, Chief Thundercloud and Chief White Cloud, another heel team of Mr. Ito and Sung Young Kang, and then there's a couple of part-time teams. There's a babyface team of Johnny Eagles and Terry Lathan, and then the team of the brother team of Rip and Randy Tyler. So the tag team scene is definitely hurting. Just a few months earlier, in the winter, you had Klondike Bill and Luke Brown. You had the Bass Boys, Donnie Bass and Ronnie Bass, managed by Ma Bass. And you even had an interesting team of Bob Sweetan and Siegfried Stonka before Sweetan turned babyface. So again, you know, there's just not a lot of depth and there's not a lot of talent in the tag team scene, but sometimes you have to bring something down to build it back up again. And the two men who would be responsible for bringing it back up are here in the third quarter. And their very first meeting was in a dorm room at West Texas state university. (laughs) We already (laughs) mentioned Stan Hansen debuting in the territory. And a few months ago on the podcast, we talked about goodish debuting here. So they're both here over the summer and they're both working as baby faces Now, Goodish turns heel in late September, and that is going to set the wheels in motion for a really big run by a really big tag team in the coming months. Now, as far as Goodish turning, it looks like it was done on house shows, because in some cities, he's teaming up with fellow babyface Bob Sweetan one week, and then the next week they're wrestling against one another. But in other markets, they do the same thing with Goodish and Luke Brown. So again, it seems like there wasn't one TV angle to set all this up, although there may have been something uh, to indicate Goodish going heel. But the person he turns on is different in different markets. Hmm. We're setting up, we're, we're getting the pieces in place for a very big run by Hansen and Goodish. So that's a little trivia for you, learning about the first time that Stan met Ernie Ladd and the first time that he met Frank Goodish. But that's not enough trivia for this podcast. We need a little more trivia. We need for John to play Gordon Soley's Championship Wrestling Trivia. Uh, If you recall a few months ago on this podcast, one of the items that John bought me off eBay was a copy, an edition of Gordon Soley's Championship Wrestling Trivia Game, which came out in the 1980s. So, of course, me, you know, being uh, very clever, decided to turn the tables on John. And every month, we are going to pick a card. Uh, It's very similar to Trivial Pursuit. Each card has four (laughs) questions on it. And I'm going to test John Boucher's knowledge as John plays Gordon Soley's Championship Wrestling Trivia. Okay, here we go. John, are you ready? I, I am. I'm so nervous. Okay. But I'm even more nervous than usual because last month was not a good month. So I feel like I'm in a I'm in a slump now. I don't know the dog days of the, of the summer. Oh, you know. I'm the, I'm... All right. Well, then okay. we'll start. I'll start with what I believe to be one of the two easiest questions on this oh. card. Okay. In what city were these wrestlers raised? Mike Graham, Hulk Hogan. 
Paul Orndorff, Steve Kern, Dick Slater, Bob Orton Jr., and Brian Blair. Uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna go with Tampa, Florida. Correct. Okay. Ding ding ding. Nice. Ding ding ding. All right. Can I can I can I no lifelines. A, a, a ding, a, like a ding, like a ding and a and a zonk noise. You know. Uh, yeah. Next, well, next month, maybe. maybe. Well, we'll work okay. on that. I have. A, I could do the cha-ching, but I <laughs> can't works. do the zonk. I can't do the okay. womp womp. Ah, All right. Like True or false? Junior heavyweight wrestlers are allowed to compete with super heavyweights. You're overthinking, John. True. Yes. Okay. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I, 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 it's such a weird question to ask <laughs> yeah, because okay. that doesn't mean anything. Yeah. Yeah. People, yeah. All right. Oof. All right. Little more difficult. Oh God. I need you to think. Before I ask the question, focus on the name of the publication and, and where they're centered, and then think about the year. So who won? Who was the winner of Pro Wrestling Illustrated Magazine's Manager of the Year in 1973? Pro Wrestling Illustrated? Manager of the Year in 1973. Yes. There was no Pro Wrestling Illustrated in 1973, so this is interesting. Well, yeah, you're, you're, that's funny because you're right. Yeah, that's not. Uh, huh. And they were, and they were like, imagine, I think they were all based in Rockville Center, New York, correct? Yeah, yes. Um, as a baby face, I, I would have to guess like Arnold Skoland. Mm, nope, that is not correct. Uh, okay. Uh, that was the Grand Wizard. Okay. Okay, cool. Interesting. I would that that's who I would have voted for. Yeah. Yeah. I, I was I was so, thinking babyface manager. Uh, but think about from a fan standpoint. I don't think Skolan was ever particularly popular amongst fans. I think that was just a uh, a you know a role given to him behind the scenes for his service. You know. Yeah. Just, absolutely. So, yeah. 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 So yeah, I I I again, I'm like you. I would have guessed. Ha, so I so was this another magazine in '73? Did after. Were there, well, there weren't Aptor mags, but the family, the publishing family that became the Aptor mags was around. Yeah. But I forget which title is, but well, there you go. Interesting. Yeah. All right. We're going to have to okay. go with one more question. And this is a little tricky, too. You're going to, oh. you're going to, Vance, to really, really think about this one. Oh. Whom did Nick Bockwinkle defeat on October 9th, 1982 to regain the AWA World Heavyweight title? Oh, Otto Vanth. Okay. Did you need my really obvious hint? Uh, I want to say no because I, I I remember the I remember those title changes. Those, okay. those were that was 1982 was the first full year that I that I was a fan of wrestling. Like from January 82, and I remember I remember a lot of those weird 82 uh, trivia questions because of that. So I want to say no, but that was a good. Uh, yeah, yeah. Okay. So thank you for you the were, Yeah, you were three for four, which means you were batting 750. Yeah, take that. Which is a whole lot more than the Atlanta Braves batted when I went to see them in New York at City Field oh earlier this month. So, uh, listeners of the podcast know I'm uh, visiting all 30 Major League Baseball stadiums, stadiums this season. And in early August, I went up to New York. I, first, I went to a Brooklyn Cyclones game. 
And then the next day I went to a Yankees game. And then the day after that, I went to a Mets Braves game. And I reached out to John when I was planning this trip and asked him if he would be able to make one of these games and we would meet up and go to the, you know, and watch the game together. And uh, so, yes, in City Field on, uh, was it August 3rd, I believe? That sounds correct. August 3rd or 4th. I think it was a Thursday. So that would have been the 4th. But we met up to uh, not only see the Mets, but see the Mets play their division arch rivals, the Atlanta Braves. And the the Mets put a little hurting on the Braves. It ended up being a close game at the end, but the the Mets got out to a really early lead and uh, the Braves could never catch them from there. But John, it was was great to see you, even though you were were a little tardy to the game. I was. I wasn't sorry. I'm sorry. It wasn't your fault. You accidentally no. you accidentally stole a car. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's like the keys are in the ignition. It was the station wagon. No, what was the uh, oh, that was the uh th- this happens almost every time I take the subway now. Uh the uh not even on the train I was on another train, uh someone had pulled the emergency brake on the train, which delayed everything. So uh, after sitting idle for about 15 minutes, I was like so I just and I was like, oh well, I'll I'll Uber, you know, which just you know, of course, it's gonna. I got there maybe five minutes earlier than I would have if I just stayed on the damn train. Right, but, but you didn't I, know. No, and I for some, for some I I like to as long as I'm moving, I feel like I'm. It's better than just sitting in a train with a bunch of angry people. So. I'm I'm the same way. <sighs> I, yeah, I always want to be making some sort of forward progress. Yeah. <sighs> so yeah, but. Uh, it was great seeing John. This would be the second time we have met in real life in person. IRL. After we, uh, IRL, after we got together for dinner last December when I was up in New York. But what's interesting, John, is on my baseball adventures, you are not the only person I know via professional wrestling that I have uh, run into. Really? Really. So um, back in May... I was flying to Cincinnati on a Sunday morning for a day game, and I'm at the Atlanta airport waiting to get on the tram, and I see a familiar face walking by. So I yell out, hey, Rick, and it is my friend, former wrestler Rick Michaels, who is now, uh, what do they call male seamstresses, John? Do they just call them tailors or seamstresses? Do they call them seamstresses? Seamsters? I don't I don't know. But for many years, he has been a seamster for numerous wrestlers in the uh, World Wrestling Entertainment and now for AEW. He was actually he had been contacted at the last minute to make ring gear for one of the AEW wrestlers for double or nothing. And wow. because it was such late notice, uh, they couldn't he couldn't ship it to them. So they basically they literally flew him to Las Vegas the day of the pay-per-view to deliver uh, ring gear to one of their talents. Wow. But that's not the only person in wrestling related to all elite wrestling that I met. Um, At one point I'm on a plane from uh, Minnesota to Kansas city. And as I board the plane, uh, one of the, one of the seats in first class, someone kind of sort of looks familiar. I don't think much of it, but then I sit down and as I'm thinking about it, the person who I think it was, I know they live in Minnesota. And after I went online to see where this was a Wednesday, where I went to see where AEW Dynamite was that night, it was outside of Kansas City. So now I'm figuring, all right, this is probably who it is. So I direct message 
Chris Harrington, who is AEW's Senior Vice President of Business Strategy. And I messaged him. I said, hey, by any chance, are you on this Minnesota to Kansas City plane right now? And he says, yes, I am. <laughs> so Chris, of course, in addition to working for All Elite Wrestling, was the creator of WrestleNomics. So as one of, you know, a small number of people whose uh, careers of you know, whose passions for wrestling and math have intersected, I absolutely have spoke with him many times um, online in the past, but this was the first time I got to meet him in person. So uh, after cool. the plane landed, we talked a little bit uh, in baggage claim while waiting for our ride shares. And he told me some of the neat projects that he's working on as far as the analytics end of things with AEW. And, and oh, cool. it, it was really fascinating to hear what he's working on. They're really doing some interesting stuff with how they analyze and parse data and evaluate it and use it to uh, plan things going forward. But that's not all. Uh, just last week, uh, the week before we were recording this, when I was in both Chicago and Milwaukee, when I was in Milwaukee at the Brewers game, I got a uh, message from a listener of ours on Twitter, oh, who wow. uh, is a reporter for the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel. He's the Brewers' beat reporter. Oh. And he said he's a longtime listener of the podcast. And if there was a chance I could meet up with him in between innings, uh, did I want to? And I said, of course I do. So uh, one of our listeners, Todd Rosiak, who is a reporter uh, in Milwaukee, who has covered both the Brewers and before that, the Green Bay Packers. And I believe he's worked at the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel for like 30 years. Oh, wow. As a reporter. Um, so, yeah, we talked about baseball and wrestling. And life, mostly wrestling and baseball, because the wrestling is life and baseball is life. But yeah. it was cool to hear from a fan of the podcast who says, yeah. hey, you're Al Getz from Turning the Territories. I'm in the that's same place you awesome. are. You want to you wanna meet? So that's, so that's cool. pretty cool. And to top it all off, the next day at Wrigley Field, I'm at the Cubs game and I'm wearing my Macho Man Randy Savage, the, the, you know, the classic purple shirt that yep. everyone wears. And as I'm walking by, I hear someone from uh, the an upper deck shouting down, Macho Man, Macho Man. So I look up and sure enough, there's another guy wearing a Macho Man, the same Macho Man t-shirt. His name was Jason. So we talked for a little while. We traded our really bad Randy Savage impressions, took some pictures. So yeah, even when I'm going around just for baseball, I still have encounters with people in wrestling. Oh, that's so cool. Yeah, and my quest continues. I'm actually, uh, by the time this comes out, I will have already been to stadium number 26, and that's PNC Park in Pittsburgh. I'm catching a day game. And then from there, I'm going on a mystery trip where I'm going to catch three minor league baseball games in three different cities, all in, in one state that I have never been to before. Wow. And there's not a whole lot of states I haven't been to before, so perhaps that gives you a hint. But, of course, follow me on Twitter to find out where the mystery trip is so you can learn something new. Just like John and I learn every month. Mm -hmm. In the yep. course of our research, we learn tons of new things. And at the end of every month's episode, we each name one new thing we learned yep. this month. So, John, what did you learn this month? So I think you all might be familiar with this this one, uh, either because I posted it on Twitter earlier this month, or you might just you might just already know about it. Um, 
So earlier this month, I was in a, uh, a a scaffold match hole, if you will. Uh, I thought you, know, you were going to say you were in a scaffold match. No, 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 <laughs> I, no, no. I'm scared of heights. I'm not going up on that thing. Um, the, the, you know, the famous, you know, quote unquote, first one being uh, Jerry Jarrett, Don Green, 1971, Louisville. Uh, a lesser known match from a couple of years before. Uh, very similar sort of thing. You know, they, they build it in Memphis as a gladiator pit match between Johnny Walker and Johnny Long. Uh, no video of that exists, but it's listed in newspaper ads as two men wrestling on an 18-inch plank eight feet above the ring. But I've always heard rumors that our our friend Irish Mike Clancy wrestled in something similar to that, build differently, though, uh, back in the late 50s. But no one has been able to really uncover actual evidence or clippings or advertisements. So I went trying to find that. So... Uh, as of yet, I have not found any evidence of Mike Clancy in an almost scaffold match. Maybe soon. But over the course of looking through a ton, 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 ton of Memphis newspaper ads and results, I found something else that I thought was interesting. Memphis results, you know, you're going to get a lot of, a lot of, a lot of freaking Fargos. You know, you get Jackie Fargo, Roughhouse Fargo, Don Fargo, even Joe Fargo. Um, but this month, I learned that for a just a period of a week or two, there was a Bob Fargo. Uh, <laughs> so I posted some of these clippings on Twitter. Some folks had some ideas that didn't really work chronologically as to who they thought it was. And then, and then uh, Cornette chimes in with, oh, wow, yeah, I've never seen this. You should ask uh, Scott Teal, Crowbar Press. So I thought, okay, that's a good idea. Let me just – I'm going to reread that time period from Don Fargo's book, Summer of 60, 1960, before I email Scott. Maybe, maybe the answer is there under my nose. Mm-hmm. I haven't actually read Didn't find anything. So I go to bed thinking, oh, I don't want to bother Scott Teal with this. He's probably busy. He doesn't want to deal with my questions. He's got his own stuff to work on. So I wake up the next morning having my, my coffee, and then bam, email from Scott Teal. <laughs> he emailed me. Uh, I will read from his email now. Hello, John. Someone sent me a post from Twitter or someplace. Here's what I know. Uh, I asked Don about the identity of Robert Fargo several times, and he has no recollection of a Robert or Bob Fargo. It appears to be a short-run thing, as I've only been able to find four matches with Robert Fargo in the Fargo mix. Uh, two matches took place in Nashville, the first on May 31st, 1960, when Robert, billed as Don's brother, was working in Don's corner when Mike Clancy defended the Southern Heavyweight title. Fargo lost the second and third falls, but the Fargo stole the belt after the title match. The following week, June 7, they teamed up in a handicap match against Clancy. Clancy beat both Fargos within the stipulated 60 minutes. On June 1st, Don and Bob Fargo teamed up in Bowling Green in a grudge handicap match against Oni Wiki Wiki, with Wiki having to beat both Fargos within 60 minutes. The following week, Don and Bob teamed up with Sol Wangeroff in a handicap match against Irish, Matt Clancy, Irish Mike Clancy and Oni Wiki Wiki. Jackie or Sonny definitely weren't Robert because they were in the Charlotte territory that week. They were in Charlotte on the nights before the national matches and in Durham, North Carolina on the nights of the Bowling Green matches. I wondered if it might be Jim Dalton who wrestled with Don as Jimmy Dykes in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, but they didn't get together until May 1961. Don often picked up partners in the various territories when she appeared, but there was nobody named Robert or Bob in any of the cities he wrestled during May, June, or July 1960. So the identity of Robert or Bob Fargo will likely remain a mystery. So that's that's, yeah. that's the mystery. Yeah. Uh, so that's a mystery. I'll tell you, 
there's a hint in the match descriptions you gave me. Because you will notice that when Bob Fargo was on, was teaming with Don, there was always one less person on the other team, which makes me think he was undersized. Hmm. Because uh, that sounds yeah. like, a, it smells like a manager's type role huh. to do that type of thing. So, you know, when it's the two of them, they're against one wrestler, either Clancy or Ani Wiki Wiki. And when it's three of them, it's uh, the two Fargos and another manager against yeah. two, quote unquote, full size, you know, two yeah. regular wrestlers. So I'm huh. wondering if it was just some sort of lackey flunky who was not an actual wrestler who might have not been big enough to be a wrestler. Interesting. That's a good point. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, but that's interesting. And so if our, any of our listeners are interested in, in uh, d- digging into this mystery about Bob Fargo or Robert Fargo, uh, let us yeah. know. Now my, this month I learned is not wrestling related, but it's geography related. And uh, I've all, I've often said that uh, by being a wrestling fan and watching wrestling on TV, I learned a lot about geography because where else is a teenager in New York going to learn about places like Dothan, Alabama or <laughs> Altoona, Pennsylvania yeah. or Amarillo, Texas? You know, really it exposed me to many different cities and towns all across the country. And one of the interesting things about cities in the United States is there are a handful of what are called twin cities, where it's a city with the same name that exists on the border of two states. And it's actually, they're technically two separate cities, but they are contiguous and they they do have the same name. They just exist in two separate states. Uh, I think the biggest example of this is Kansas City, Missouri and Kansas City, Kansas. Other examples are Bristol, Tennessee and Bristol, Virginia and Texarkana, Arkansas and Texarkana, Texas. Well, this month I learned that the two cities of Vancouver, Washington, and Vancouver, British Columbia, are not another example of this. I always assumed that the the two cities were connected, even if there was an international border between them. I assumed Vancouver lay on the southern you know border of Canada and Washington State, and Vancouver lay on the northern border of Washington State and Canada. But that is not the case. While Vancouver, British Columbia, is close to the U.S. border. It does not actually touch the U.S. border. And as for Vancouver, Washington, not only does it not lie along the northern border of the state, it actually lies on the southern border of the state and is literally just a few miles from Portland, Oregon. Interesting. So, yeah, I, uh, I'm sure our Northwestern uh, listeners now think I'm uh, completely <laughs> clueless. But, you know, I just always assumed if there's a Vancouver, Washington and a Vancouver, British Columbia, they are yeah. probably connected, you know, and just separated by the border. But that is not the case. As a matter of fact, uh, Vancouver is technically Vancouver, Washington is part of the Portland, Oregon Metropolitan Statistical Area which for all intents and purposes means it's a suburb of Portland. Huh. Yeah. Interesting. That's really interesting. So there you go. There's a geography lesson. I wonder if Stan Hansen, who majored in geography at West Texas State, (laughs) knew that. I'll email Scott Teal. Yes. So Scott Teal will know. (laughs) Next month on the podcast, John, we're going to move ahead a few years and we're going to look at the third quarter of 1978 in Leroy McGurk's Oklahoma slash Louisiana territory. 
Ernie Ladd wants candy, but Mr. Wonderful wants Ladd. The Brute sees Red. And a cowboy who would later become an outlaw feuds with an outlaw who would later become an Amway salesman. Oh, wow. All that and more next month on Charting the Territories. As always, be sure to follow both of us on Twitter. You can catch me at Al Getz Wrestling. That's Al G-E-T-Z Wrestling. And to follow my baseball exploits, you can also catch me at Al Getz Baseball. John, where can our listeners find you on Twitter? Uh, at J-O-N underscore B-O-U-C-H-E-R, John underscore Boucher on Twitter. Uh, follow me there, please. Yeah. Trying and, to, and my don't slow forget. map march to 2000. Yeah, and don't and don't forget we're less than a couple of months away from the premiere of the territories on Vice, a yeah. project uh, that has uh, two of the biggest superstars in all of professional wrestling involved: the Rock, Dwayne Johnson, and John Boucher. Yeah, yeah, he, yeah, yeah. High five, Rock! Having some tequila. <laughs> Our blog at www.chartingtheterritories.com is updated regularly, and this podcast comes out the fourth Thursday of every month. To be the first to know when new podcast episodes are available, subscribe now wherever you find your favorite podcasts and at chartingtheterritories.com. For this month, uh, Al and John are signing off. I hope you enjoy the rest of your summer because by the time the next episode comes out it will be the fall so enjoy the summer while it lasts and we will catch you next month see you